Once again, welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel. We're so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. And uh, we want to just continue to worship the Lord together now. So if you want to grab your Bibles with me, we're going to do that through the study of his word. If you need a Bible, there should be some hardback black ones uh, around the floor there. Uh, on the chairs, you can grab one of those if you need one. Um, so we are um, currently working our way through the book of Acts. And uh, we've been looking at different aspects of the, the work of the church and God building his church and the Holy Spirit moving and working and all these things. So today we're going to kind of step into a new series, a new mini-series in the book of Acts uh, that I've entitled, entitled Family in the Spirit. We're going to look at what does it mean to be the family of God as the church empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I, it's just been so mind-blowing to me over the last several weeks. Um, you know, as things started to come together, we're uh, we were going to bring two churches together as one, um, and we started looking at dates on how this was going to play out and the services and moving, doing a service there, doing a service here. And um, I, I plan our entire year's sermon calendar in May. So like in May, I go away for a week, and I plan, I plan the entire year. So the messages that you've heard leading up to this adoption process, and then last week on grace and the unity that that brings, and then today stepping into the family of God as the church for the next four weeks— God had all that planned way before we knew anything about this whole process. And so it's just so cool to see how God works and the Holy Spirit prepares us for things. We're going to see more of that today in his text. So go to Acts 14, and we're going to look at what's it mean to be the family of God and how do we step into this specifically in, in terms of loving one another and loving others as Christ has loved us. And uh, we, want to, we want to do that well. And so um, we're going to talk about love through the loss this morning. It's funny to me how um, some of the ways that relationships change us that we maybe would never expect. Um, when my, um, you know, prior to Courtney and I getting together, I think I'd maybe only ever seen one musical in my entire life. Um, it was a high school production of Oklahoma, and it really wasn't so much about the play, except rather than a girl that was in the play, if you know what I'm talking about. And so um, that was my only exposure really to musicals at that point. And then we got together and she was a music major and, and loves all that stuff. And so we started going to more. And now we, 15 plus years later, we do musicals all the time. And I love it. And it's become a good part of, of what we do together. And, and one of the musicals that she has exposed me to over the last 15 years um, was Les Mis. And I'm sure many of you have probably heard that or seen that or, or familiar a little bit with it. But um, one of the main characters in Les Mis is Jean Valjean. And he is an ex-con that's just recently got released from prison at the beginning of it. And uh, he's trying to find his way back into the real world, right? He's trying to, trying to find a way out. How can I get a job? How can I get my feet back underneath me? And, and he's really struggling. Nobody wants to, to give him a chance. And so he ends up coming across um, this, this bishop, Bishop Muriel. And he opens up his home and invites Valjean to come and stay with him for the night. He gives him a place to sleep and gives him a space to stay. And is just really trying to show him love and mercy and grace. And is just really being a great example of Christ in this moment. And so he opens up his home and invites him in. And then in the middle of the night, Valjean spies some silver plates and he thinks this is his chance to get ahead. And so he swipes the silver plates and cuts out and leaves and ends up getting caught by the police. And uh, so the police grab him up and they take him back to the bishop's house to get it all sorted out and to get the, pre the charges, you know, settled and, and so forth so they can book him again. And, um, and so they go and they knock on the door and they're waiting for the bishop to come. And you can kind of just see in, in Valjean's eyes and kind of like, he, know, he knows he's done for. Like, this is it, right? Like, this is going to be second strike. He's going back to prison, maybe for life. Like, this is, this is not going to go well for him. So they knock on the door. Finally, the bishop comes. And when the bishop opens the door, he doesn't do what we might expect. He doesn't 
lash out into this tirade and say, oh, there you are, you stinking criminal, and give me my plates back. And he doesn't do that. In that moment, he, he looks at me and says, oh, there you are. I'm so glad to see you. I don't know what happened. I, 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 gave you the, I gave you the silver candlesticks too. Why didn't you take those when you took the plates? And he gives him even more silver to then leave and go on his way. And this act of love and mercy and grace at the hands of Bishop Muriel is a great example of what I'm talking about today when I'm talking about loving through the loss. Like he was taking a serious hit. Like that was some valuable stuff that he was just handing over to this ex-criminal that he just met. But he was staying on mission and he was loving that man despite the loss that he was gonna suffer at his hands. That's the same thing that Christ did for us, right? Jesus came to love us despite the loss that he was going to have to suffer for our sin on the cross. And as followers of Christ, he's asking us to do the same thing. So here's kind of the main thought I want to circle around today. Setbacks don't change the mission. So love through the loss. Setbacks don't change the mission. Things are going to come. Problems are going to come. You're going to have issues. People are going to do you wrong. It's going to hurt sometimes. Following Jesus is not easy. It costs us something quite often. But what we see in the book of Acts is that even when the cost comes, we keep going and we keep loving through the loss. So with that in mind, let's look at chapter 14, verse 1, and we'll see what, how this applies for Paul and Barnabas. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country, and they were con- and they. There they continue to preach the gospel. Here's the first point this morning. When they're divided, love the people. Even when they're divided, even when there's division in the group, in your life, when in your relationships, God calls us to keep loving people. So the story here just kind of catch you up if you're not with us yet. So Iconium is basically just the next city on their missionary journey, right? They just came from... Um, Pamphylia, and then they're going through Antioch Poseida, and now they're in Iconium. And new city, but same process. They go straight to the synagogue to start preaching to the Jews because they're primed for the gospel. And it says here, a different result happens this time. A great number of Jews and Greeks believed. So it's great success. They go in, they preach the gospel, and people start coming to faith. People start getting added to the family of God. This is a victory. But there were some unbelieving Jews who stirred up the Gentiles against them and it says he poisoned their minds. Like they, they, they literally started feeding them things to turn them against the gospel and against Paul and against the teaching, seeking to oppose him, seeking to cause division among the people in the city. I think it's interesting, though, right after this happens, it says in the next verse, so, and that's a connecting word, right? So what did they do? They remained. <laughs> they didn't cut and run. Okay, fine, you guys don't want it. We're out here. No, they remained for a long time. 
because they had seen some people come to faith, and now they had family members, right? They had family of God members in the city that needed them, and so they stayed, and they kept preaching and teaching and helping these people grow in their faith, speaking boldly, it says, the word of his grace. They loved these people enough to tell them the truth. They didn't back down from the message just because it was being opposed, but they stayed and they kept teaching and loving and preaching despite the opposition, despite the conflict, despite the threat of maybe even losing the relationship. You ever felt that? When you kept pressing in on somebody because you know they need to hear this, but you're not sure how they're going to receive it and it might just blow the whole thing up? But they stayed in spite of division. They kept going because they loved God's family. And God comes along and he helps them out. He gives them some signs and wonders. He gives them some miracles as tangible proof of like, yeah, God's in this. This is, this is from the Lord. Can't you see the miracles here? But it didn't matter. It didn't change anything. The people were still divided. There were still those who were opposing the gospel. And when it says here that the people were divided, I think basically what you can, in my mind, what you can see there is, is they're basically saying, listen, pick a side, <laughs> right? Like there's two sides. You've got to go one way or the other. And this is what the gospel always does. Can we just be honest for a second in church? We love to come in here and sing about the gospel and pray about the gospel and talk about the gospel, and we love it as Christians. But in the real world, the gospel does this. It brings division. Because it pushes you to one side or the other. You have to make a decision. Are you for it or are you against it? And if, for those who are for it, that's actually a really good thing because as it, as it pushes us over here on this side, it pushes us together, and it unites us as the family of God. And it brings that unity that we need, that Jesus prayed for. Do you understand that in, when Jesus was on the earth and he was teaching, more than once he said that the family of God was more valuable than our earthly families. Like that's really hard for us to swallow in our day and age. In our culture, the, the nuclear family has become almost everything to us. But Jesus actually says there's nothing wrong with that. He loves nuclear families. He loves our families. And that's good. But he says, no, 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 my, my family is here. It's the family of God. Because these families, as much as we love them, are temporary. Some of you have experienced that. You've lost members or people of your family, and they're not here anymore. But the family of God is eternal. It lasts forever. We're going to be with these people for eternity. And so here Paul is, is pressing in on that and He's staying for these people. And, and so the gospel divides, and it brings some people over here into the unity of the family of God, but it also brings some people over here into opposition to the family of God and to the gospel. And here it says that they attempted to mistreat some and to stone them, and they were going after Paul and Barnabas, but they heard about it, and so they decided to get out of town before the stones start flying, okay? And so they go to the next city, Lystra, but when they get there, guess what they do? They kept preaching the gospel. They didn't stop just because of the threat of stones. They kept going despite the persecution, despite the opposition, despite the loss that they just suffered because of this division. There was probably some people in that city that they had poured into, that they had been talking to, that they loved dearly, that they had to leave behind and leave on the other side of a division that wasn't pretty. But they kept going and they kept loving the people. Here's what I think we need to understand about division, because division taps all of our lives, right? And here's what we need to, I think, really grasp this morning is that division always starts internal, not external. Stay with me on this for a moment, okay? Division always starts internal, not external. 
a lot of times when division comes, we want to point to other things. We want to point to circumstances or situations. And well, it, it's because this happened. That's what caused the rift. But it wasn't actually the circumstance. It wasn't the situation. It was our response to the circumstance and the situation that causes division. It's how we handle it. It's what's actually in our hearts. You see, here, it wasn't that Paul preached the gospel. It wasn't that the people believed. It wasn't even that the Jews started opposing him. That was the issue of division. It was the people's hearts that were already ready to embrace this conflict in the situation. And the same is true for us today. I mean, I think we can look around. We can see a lot of division in our country, in our workplaces, in our families, and sometimes even division comes to the church. And every single one of those, we might want to point to some external thing going on and say that's the reason, but ultimately that's just the symptom. It's not the reason. The reason is here. It's in us and how we respond to these issues and circumstances and situations that come up that we don't like. So I want to give you just this morning, just so we can kind of do a heart check on ourselves, maybe be a little more aware to guard against division in our lives, three internal causes of division. Three things that come up in our heart that lead to division. Then the first one is fear. You can jot these down in your notes. The first thing that leads our hearts to division is fear. And it can show up in lots of different ways. Sometimes we fear things that are different. We fear things that are unknown. And so we push away from the table. We divide ourselves from those things. Sometimes we fear threats of what might happen if, if I do this or I go here or I interact with this person. Like, how could that affect me or my life or my income or my health? And so this fear drives us to divide and to push away. Sometimes it's a matter of um, we're just afraid to miss out, right? What if, what if, I, what if I don't go? What if, I, if I'm not there? What if I'm not in, then what if I miss something? And all these things cause division and it causes us to separate from other people. So fear is the first. Number two, negative thoughts. How often does a situation happen or circumstance happen at work, at home, at church, and your brain starts playing out the scenario and you already start deciding what that person thought or did or how they thought it, and and you start assigning the worst possible motives to that person before you ever really even have the full scenario. And when we start embracing those negative thoughts that assign motives, that assign the worst, that start judging others and just assuming things, it automatically divides us from that person. Instead, we've got to go, we've got to talk, we've got to figure it out, we've got to get some context. Don't let our hearts get ahead of our heads. Number three is pride. It seems like that one makes every list, like, of any issues or conflicts or sin in our life. Pride is always somewhere in the mix because that's the root of everything that happens negative in our hearts. Right? I want it my way or else. And if I don't get it my way, then I'm going to divide and I'm going to push away and, and this isn't going to work anymore. Sometimes it shows up in the form of jealousy. Sometimes it shows up in the form of selfishness. But one way or another, it divides us because we want it our way. These are the three main things that cause division. Sure, it might be related to some circumstance in your life, but it's because our heart responds with one or more of these things. And when we do this, it inevitably leads to a loss of relationship. 
Division always leads to a loss of relationship. Usually it's people that we care about. If we're really honest, it's people that we love, people that are close to us, people who are family and friends. And at one point we had a really good relationship with, and then something comes up and one of these things blooms into division and the relationship gets lost in the process. But what God calls us to as Christians, as followers of Christ, is to love, to keep loving in spite of the division. Even when relationships are lost, to keep loving the people so that hopefully they can be restored. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus did for us. You know, in our flesh, it's oftentimes so easy for division to rise up, especially in close family relationships. I was thinking about it this week. I remember one time very vividly uh, when I was a child or when I was younger at least, um, my mom and my stepdad were separated at the time. They'd had a major division in their relationship and they were not currently together. And uh, during that time, my mom's brother um, ended up taking his own life and we had to go down for the funeral. And so my mom and my sisters and I all went down to Kentucky. That's where all my family's from. Went down there for the funeral. And so we were there for the visitation. We were at the funeral. We are in the funeral home. And then in the middle of the visitation, my stepdad walks in. And I remember my mom catching his eye and one being so shocked that he was there because I mean, that this division had been long and deep and, but then at the same point, I saw in her eyes that feeling of, oh, he actually cares. And in that moment, whatever was between them, my stepdad allowed his love to overcome the division in their lives. And he came, despite whatever loss he was going to suffer by giving in on this particular issue, he came and he showed that he loved in spite of the loss. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. You see, for us as humans, because of the sin that is in our hearts, we are living in a division from God. That's what the Bible says, that sin separates us from the Lord and that we can't fix it and we can't get there. And so Jesus came to be a human and to live a perfect sinless life and then to die on the cross so that he could, his love could overcome the division and bridge our lives back to God so that we could experience forgiveness. And just as Christ has done that for us, he calls us to do that for each other in the family of God and he calls us to do that for others in our lives who aren't even Christians but need to experience the love of Jesus that our love is stronger and it can overcome that division when it's a love that's powered by the Holy Spirit. So here's, here's kind of the thought. My love can rise above division because it's a matter of the heart, not the conditions. It is possible for my love to rise above any division, any relational conflict, because it's not about the situation, it's not about the circumstances, it's not about the conditions of the relationship, it's about the heart that I have for that person. So the first thing we have to do is even when there's division, love the people. Second thing, let's look at the next set of text here. Go to verse eight with me now. Verse eight says, now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking and Paul looking intently at him uh, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. 
And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Second thing this morning is, when they're misguided, love the people. Even when they're misguided, when they're off, when they're not seeing things clearly, continue to love the people. So here they go to the next city, Lystra, and they come across this crippled man who Luke goes like in great length to make us sure we understand. He's crippled from birth, never walked, like this dude is down, right? Like for all my princess bride friends, he's not mostly crippled, he's all crippled, okay? Like he is, he is out, okay? So, but Paul looks at him and he sees that he has faith to be made well. And he says, stand. And the man, after never walking a day in his life, springs to his feet and just starts walking around. Like we were painting yesterday and I was down in a crouch position. It took me a couple seconds just to get up and start walking again, right? Like this guy jumps up and just starts going. Obviously a miracle, which got some attention from the people for sure. So the crowd saw it and they said this. They said, listen to this statement. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of man. True statement. Wrong gods and wrong man. But you got the statement right. God has come down in the person of man. And, God, and Paul's getting ready to tell them all about it. But they think Barnabas and, Saul, or Barnabas and Paul are now gods. They think Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes. And so in the city there, they had a, they had a temple to Zeus. And so the priest of Zeus comes and he starts to try to worship Paul and Barnabas and to give sacrifices with the people. And, and they all get around and they get ready to, to worship these guys because they don't want the guys to punish them, right? You see, the, the Gentiles here are a little bit different than maybe the Gentiles in our day. They knew how to worship. In fact, they were all about worship. They would worship any new God that came along as long as it was going to help them in some way, all right? They had no problem with the worship thing. And this is us as humans too. Whether, even though it doesn't look the same maybe today as it did back then, as humans, we are made to worship. There's this internal desire in us that drives us to seek out something bigger than ourselves. Something that's, that's, that's more than what we are, that we want to find greater meaning in our lives than just day-to-day me. That's a desire to worship. That's why in our country we love ball games and concerts and, and, and money and substances. It's because we're always looking for something that gives us that thrill, that something that's bigger than us to worship. Unfortunately, when we have that desire to worship without the truth of who should be worshipped, it leads to this. It leads to the worship of false gods and idols and as Paul calls it here, vain things. 
So Barnabas and Paul, they hear about these guys trying to worship them, and it says they tore their garments, and they rushed out crying, we are also men. In other words, don't worship us. We are no gods. We are men just like you. They said, but we have good news. Really funny to me that Luke uses those words. They're like, that's literally, we've got the gospel. We've got good news for you. Let me tell you about Jesus, the true God. They say, turn from the vain things to a living God. Redirect your worship to the one true God. They didn't tell him to stop worshiping. Did you notice? They didn't say, no, no. They said, just redirect it. Let me tell you who you should really be worshiping. The Gentiles were misguided on their worship. So Paul starts, and he can't start with Abraham because they have no idea who Abraham is, right? So he doesn't do the whole Israel thing. He's like, let's go back to creation. Let me tell you about the God who created all things and is over all things and has been providing for you throughout all the years of your food and all your stuff. And, and this is the God that you need to worship. Not us, not Zeus, not anything or anybody else. Worship him. And then it's interesting that Luke throws this in at the end. He says, but they could still scarcely restrain the people from worshiping them. These people were so desperate to worship something real that when they got the taste of it through the miracle of this man walking, they were like all in. Like, no, 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 we, we gotta worship something here because like this is real and we haven't ever experienced something like this and we need to find this God and worship him. That's the posture of every human heart. I think it was Calvin that said that the human heart is an idol factory constantly looking for something to worship. And when we don't have the real thing, we'll plug anything in that hole. So for me and you, as Christians who know the real God that needs to be worshiped, our job is to help guide others to find the true God to be worshiped. That's what Paul's doing here. He's just guiding them to the true God who deserves their worship. And sometimes when we do that, when we're bold enough to step up and point people to away from whatever it is they're worshiping now to the true God, it's going to cost some loss. Again, you might have some, take some hits on your relationships. You might lose some influence in that person's life. You might lose them being committed to you or to your thing or listening to you or, but you know what? Paul didn't care. He's like, I don't want you to be committed to me. I don't care if you like me. I, I, I just want you to know Jesus. So he was willing to do what it took to point them to the true God. Who and how we worship is the biggest question in our lives. Like this is numero uno for your life, is who and how are you worshiping? It literally determines your eternity. Let's take unbelievers for a second. Oftentimes, I'm a pastor, and, you know, usually I try to, like, kind of hold that back when I meet new people. I don't, like, lead with the pastor thing, because as soon as you, they know you're a pastor, things, like, the whole conversation changes. They don't, they stop using words that they would use if it, you weren't a pastor, and they start talking about different things. It's just, it just gets weird. But inevitably, they, they find out I'm a pastor, and so um, I always ask me, so, so would you go to church somewhere, or whatever, da, da, da. And, and it's usually something like this. Well, you know, I, I, would, I would go to church, you know, I'd love to go to church, but, like, that's my only day of the week to, that's my only morning to go play golf, or that's my only morning to sleep in, or, or like whatever their thing is, and, and I understand that. Listen, I love to play golf, all right? I, that, that's good with me. I, I'm cool with that, but I, can I just be honest with you this morning? 
no matter how good your handicap is, that is not going to help you one stinking bit in eternity. It's just not. Those extra hours of sleep, as sweet as they are, especially after you just lost one last night, it's, they're great, but listen, they are not going to give rest to your soul when you're face-to-face with the God of the universe. Worship is more important because it connects us to the God who is eternal. That's who we want to be with. And even for us as believers, if you're already a follower of Christ, this applies to us too. No, you, I'm not saying your worship saves you, but I'm just saying your worship is evidence of your faith. Worship is the evidence of how true your relationship really is committed to the Lord. Several months back, I was at a, a pastor's event, and I heard this pastor talking, and he said, the, the two worst things that a St. Louis pastor can hear, and I'm, about, I'm getting ready to like get a little touchy here, so just... Take a deep breath, okay? He said, the worst two things that a, a St. Louis pastor can hear is, one, my kid made the traveling team, or two, we bought a lake house. So, because you know automatically that family is out of worship at least two Sundays a month because they've got other commitments now. And listen, again, I'm not against sports, man. I love sports. I love to watch them. I love to play them. But no matter, in, in, in 10 to 15 years from now, your kid's batting average and trophies aren't going to mean a thing. But the spiritual state of their heart is going to mean everything. Okay? How much sun you got and how many extra hours you got on the boat, not going to help warm your heart that's so cold because you haven't been connected to God in worship. We need this. This isn't just something fun that we do on Sunday mornings. We need to worship the God of the universe so he can fill us with his power and his glory and his spirit so we can get through the next week in a way that actually reflects something similar to who Jesus was. Paul and Barnabas, they weren't trying to get a following. They weren't trying to get fame or fortune. They were just trying to guide people to worship Jesus. Give up the vain things and prioritize worship of the Lord. It was easy for them to say, not us, him. They they didn't even blink because they got it. This is it. And, And our jobs, one, is to be that, to be worshipers first and foremost, and then to guide other people to be worshipers. And if we come in like Paul and Barnabas with a loving, humble heart to say, listen, I'm not against you. I'm for you. I just want to help you find a better way to worship. People will respond to that. My love can guide them to the true God if it flows from humility. Our love that we have in Christ, that we share with others, it can help guide people to the true worship of Jesus if we come in with a humble heart and, and, and keep it about love and not about rules and beating people over the head. Listen, I'm not trying to give anybody a guilt trip this morning. I'm just trying to love you enough to show you 
the truth about worship. Who around you needs that? Who in your life needs you to be, to love them enough to stand up and say, let me help guide you to a better thing to worship? Let's keep going in the text. Look at verse 19. It says, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Point number three, when they're cold-blooded, love the people. When they're just straight up cold-blooded, love the people. The Jews here, it says they came from Antioch and Iconium. So they're, now they're following Paul. They're tracking him. They're hunting him down. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Like this is exactly what he was doing to Christians before Jesus found him, right? So like they're running after him. They're trying to, and they get to, to uh, Lystra here, and they persuaded the crowds to stone Paul. These are the same people that just yesterday were like, you're a God, we want to worship you. Now they're like, stone him. What? What is going on? Because their worship was fickle. Because they didn't have it yet. This actually isn't that different than what happened to Jesus. Remember that scene? He rolls into town at the beginning of Holy Week, right, on the donkey, and everybody's crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, worship the king. And in a number of days, they're yelling out, crucify him they didn't get the worship thing. It's about our hearts engaging in worship of the king. So they stoned him and they dragged him out of the city so they left him for dead. They, they literally were out for Paul's blood. They thought he was done, right? They thought they had finished the job. Now we can go back home. He's out. You don't get more cold-blooded than that. Thankfully, Paul wasn't dead. So he gets up like Superman and just walks right back into the city, right? This guy is so on mission with the Lord that he just goes straight back in the city that just stoned him and tried to kill him. And he finds Barnabas, and then the next day they move on to Derby. So that's like the shake the dust off your feet thing we talked about last week. All right, fine. All right, done here. Next city, preach the gospel there. He didn't stop preaching the gospel. He's limping around. He's got bandages on his head, but like he's still going to Derby and preaching the gospel. Nothing changed. He kept loving the people, even through the loss of his physical body. He was willing to lose his comfort. He was willing to lose his safety. Paul was willing to give up his very own life if it meant more people got added to the family of God. That's how much he loved the people in spite of the loss. You know, we're now officially in the month of March. So the other night we were, I, know, I can't believe 2020 March, but we were sitting around the dinner table the other night and the girls were talking, started talking about St. Patrick's Day. And really the only thing they knew about St. Patrick's Day was um, if you don't wear green, you get pinched. Which is super important to know, especially when you're like in third grade, right? Like that's a big deal. But I was like, hey, well, maybe we need this is a good opportunity to have a little deeper conversation about St. Patrick and his life and what that meant and, and why we celebrate this holiday. And, and so I thought, maybe I'll just share this with you guys this morning. Maybe some of you don't know this. This would be helpful to you as well. So the legend of St. Patrick says that he drove snakes out of Ireland, that he defeated fierce druids with 
contest of magic, and then he used shamrocks to explain the Christian trinity to the pagan Irish people. Um, good stories, um, none of it true. Okay? No snakes, no shamrocks. Actually, St. Patrick was not even Irish. Here's the real story of St. Patrick. Historical Patrick was not Irish at all, but a spoiled, rebellious, young Roman citizen living a life of luxury in 5th century Britain. When he was suddenly kidnapped from his family's estate as a teenager and sold into slavery across the sea into Ireland. He was a slave for six years and he endured brutal conditions as he watched over his master's sheep on a lonely mountain in a strange land. He went to Ireland an atheist, but while he was there, he believed that he heard the voice of God speaking to him. One day he finally escaped and he risked his life to cross the island on a perilous journey and he finally found a a ship of pirates that gave him a, a, a lift back over to Britain. So he finally gets home. His family welcomes back their long lost son and assumed that he would just kind of take back up his life of privilege there in the family estate. But Pat had heard a different call in Ireland. His life had been changed by his experience and by God's presence in it. And so shortly thereafter, he actually got up and he returned to Ireland with the mission from the Lord to bring a a new way of life to the people who once enslaved him on the island. He believed that his mission was to go and to evangelize and to baptize the Irish people and to start essentially planting churches and creating new churches there in Ireland and to raise that up. And he did that for the next 30 years of his life. He also became one of the earliest identifiable anti-slavery activists in Western civilization as he fought against the slave trade there in Ireland that had um, enslaved him in his younger years. By his death on March 17, 461, or shortly thereafter, the Irish did end their slavery trade and never take it up again. While he was there for 30 years, loving and ministering to the people who had enslaved him, He faced constant opposition, threats of violence, kidnapping, even criticism from other church officials that were jealous of the work that he was doing. His followers faced abuse and murder and enslavement for following his teachings. But through all of the difficulties, through all the pain, through all the loss, Patrick kept on mission. He kept loving the people. How all of that translates into our modern forms of celebrating St. Patrick's Day, I have no idea. But I will tell you this. It's a fantastic example and picture for us of what it means to be like Jesus and love people even through the loss. To sacrificially give our lives for the good of others. Again, that's what Christ did for us. And he asks us to do the same for others and for him and for his kingdom. My love can lead me to sacrifice myself for the good of others. Again, it's rooted in love. It's not rooted in guilt or pressure or checking a checklist off. If any of that's your motivation to to do ministry or to help people or to serve people, it's going to fall flat really quick because there's no foundation for that. If there's not a true love in your heart that's driving you to love and sacrifice and serve others, it's going to dry up. It comes from love. 
Last couple verses this morning. Look at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord and whom they had believed. Then they, pre- they passed through Poseida and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atelia and from there they sailed to Antioch. That's the original Antioch that they started at. Where they had been convinced to, uh, commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Last point this morning. When there is fruit, love the people. Sometimes it's good stuff. It's not always bad. And when there's fruit, it means we have to love the people even more. Here it says they went to Derby, they preached the gospel in Derby, and many disciples were made. And no signs of problems. Like, finally, we, we get a city with victory and people come to, to faith in Jesus and we don't have to get stoned or ran out of town or lied about or whatever. Like, this was a win. So they're in Derby, they're making disciples, and then they're done in Derby. And to return back to Antioch, it says they went through Lystra and Iconium, Antioch. Let me give you that map for a second here. So here they are in Derby, right? They just came from Antioch, which is over here. That's where they started. They took the, the boat trip all the way through Cyprus. We talked about that. Perga, up to Antioch, Poseida, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Now they're done. Paul was from where? Do you might remember? I forgot to do my homework this week. Help me out. Tarsus, that's right, yeah. So here's Tarsus. So it would have been very easy for them to finish at Derby, head east, go through Paul's hometown of Tarsus, and then back to Antioch. Instead, Paul chose to leave Derby to go back through Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, Perga, and then back. Through all the cities where he just got ran out of town, stoned, and lied about. What? <laughs> like, Paul, do you have a death wish? Are you just like a glutton for punishment? Like, why would you take the longer route to go back through the cities that just kicked you out? Because of love. Because disciples had been made in each one of those cities, and he knew they needed strengthening and encouraging, as it says here. He went back for the people. He went back to build them up. Despite threat, despite the, 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 the risk, he kept going and loving the people and making disciples. Because there had been fruit in those cities, and that fruit needed to be tended to. And so he goes back and says he strengthened and encouraged the disciples in each city. And then through tribulation, he says, you will enter the kingdom of God. So, so Paul, fresh with the scars and the marks on his body from the stoning, stands in front of the disciples and says, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, sometimes it's hard. Point in case. Sometimes it's going to cost you something. Sometimes there's a loss to it. But keep going. Don't stop. Keep loving through the loss. That's what family does. We're the family of God. Family loves even when it hurts. 
And when we learn to love like that, when we learn to love like Jesus, you know what else we lose? Fear. When we finally get that the love of Christ is more powerful than anything we face in this life, we no longer are scared to step into these places and take a loss in order to love people for Jesus. And so they get all the way back to Antioch and it says they declared all that God had done. Not what Paul had done, not what Barnabas did, not what you did or what I did. They declared what God had done. Because you cannot love like this unless it's the love of God in you and working through you. We do not have this capacity on our own as human beings. If you try to love through the loss by yourself, you will come up dry every time and it will break you. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit and we let him fill us with the love of Jesus, we can continue on mission and loving even when it hurts. Remember the story I started with? Jean Valjean, Bishop Muriel. In that moment where he says, oh, take the candlesticks too. Valjean is so flabbergasted and so, like, I don't even know what just happened here. I was for sure going to prison, and now I got even more money. Like, and in him, in that moment where the bishop chose to love him, despite the loss, a switch flipped inside of him. And he went on then to become a very generous and caring, and it completely changed the trajectory of his life. That's what love does. When the love of Jesus hits a human heart, it changes everything. And it puts them on a whole new path of worship and living and eternity. And that's what we're called to do, to love people like that. Gain or loss, my mission is the same, love. Sometimes following Jesus, you're going to have some gains. Sometimes you're going to have some losses. But it doesn't change the mission. My duty, my job is always to love the people. Setbacks don't change the mission. Love through the loss. That's our call. That's our mission, church. To love like Jesus no matter what, even when it's costly, that's what we're running after. We are the family of God. Look around for just a moment. Just look at your neighbors. Look at your... This right here is the family of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And our job is to love each other. Whatever that costs us. Whatever that means we have to lay down. Whatever divisions we have to overcome. Whatever conflicts we have to settle. Whatever issues we have to... To, to, to put aside in our lives so we can come and worship together. Whatever that takes, our job as a family of God is to love each other through the losses and then to go out of these walls and to love the lost so they will come and be part of this family. Let's stand. Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's ask the Lord to fill us with that love so that we can do what he's called us to do. Heavenly Father, we bow before you this morning. We thank you, God, so much 
for what you're doing in each one of us in our church. Thank you, Lord, for loving us even when our sin divided us. Lord, we know that, that we did not deserve what Christ did, but you loved us enough to give your life, to pay the cost. Thank you, Lord, for loving us even now, even now when our hearts get misguided, when we give our worship to other things, when we get off track, when we get consumed with ourselves and our pride and our fear. Lord, you show us so much love. You show us exactly what it means to love through the loss. We experience from you every day. Now help us to love like that. Help us to love the same way, Lord. Help us to build our lives on your love. We pray all these things in Christ's precious and wonderful name.